you're with us, if you're new here, we pray God's blessing on you. As you meet here with us, uh, the most important thing about our gathering is God himself. That's, he is the, uh, the center of attention here, He's the most important guest, uh, and it's our pleasure to know him and to worship him and enjoy him and be before his word, and so we take time every Sunday to be in his word. We are moving through the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 6 today, in the very beginning of chapter 6. This is a pretty dark section of scripture that we're going to look at. The Bible doesn't gloss over some of the dark realities of, of fallen, this fallen world. There are some pretty dark places uh, in human history. And maybe you've known some of those places personally. You even maybe know them right now and are struggling with them. This story, this true account, not only features the darkness, but more importantly, features God's light. I have good news for you. God is a God of light, and he's in the business of shining his light in the darkness. So we will look at a passage that has some pretty dark darkness and evil, but we will also see his light shining. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. Let's pray that God can teach us from his word about not just the darkness, but his light. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We know you, Lord, not just by creation as gloriously as we see you in creation, but more importantly, we know you by the word that you've given us. You desire to be known to us in all of your goodness and glory. And so thank you. Thank you that today, as we're before your word, you are behind this. You are intent on communicating yourself to us. So help us to hear, help me to teach and proclaim well. Lord, I need your help with this challenging section of Scripture. But we look to you. It's your word. And we anticipate how you will lead us and speak to us and help us today. Be glorified in it. Build us up and send us out from this place freshly encouraged and equipped in you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. I want to talk about three things. 
from this text. I want to talk about the darkness of fallen angels, the darkness of fallen mankind, and the brightness of God's favor. Those three things are the points under this main point of God shines his brightness into the darkness. So first, the darkness of fallen angels, verses 1 through 4. This passage teaches us about the influence of fallen angels. That's what I believe is going on here. Verses 1 and 2 tell us, uh, when, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. This is a challenging two verses. There's been debate in the history of the church over who these sons of God are. And what I would want to submit to you is that they are fallen angels. We're going to take time and look at the scriptures, and I want you to uh, see what you think about it. And by the way, you don't necessarily need to agree with, with what I think the scriptures say here to get the gist of what's going on in this passage. So don't get caught up on this. But it is a helpful thing. I think when we understand it rightly, it, it brings some clarity not only to this passage, to other places in Scripture. Uh, there are three prevalent theories to what the sons of God mean. One theory is that they're fallen angels. Another is that these sons of God are mighty warlords of sorts, mighty kings who take whomever they want for their wives. The third is that they are the sons of God. They are the descendants of the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth. And so it's seen in, uh, they're seen as positive here from the, the godly line of Seth mixing with the line of Cain. That's, that's the third theory. Well, let me take you through the scriptures and again see what you think. First off, in the Old Testament, almost every single use of the phrase sons of God is pretty clearly indicating that they are angels. There's only one passage that I know of in Hosea that, that uses the term for humans. All the others use them to refer to angels. Let me show you some. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. It's very clear in that context. These are the angels. These are the divine counsel, the, the angelic hosts that are coming before the Lord, and Satan himself, a fallen angel, is part of that. Uh, Psalm 29.1, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Actually, that word, O heavenly beings, is literally sons of God. That's what it says in the Hebrew, sons of God. Daniel 3.25, it speaks uh, when the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace, right? He answered and said, but I see, uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is, fourth is like a son of the gods. I could take you through many other scriptures. I don't, I don't think I need to do that. You could do your own search for this and find that it is almost exclusively indicating these are angels, angelic beings. The New Testament as well backs that up. Two places that refer to actually this uh, part of scripture, the, the flood and the pre-flood, um, 2 Peter and Jude. Both make it pretty clear that these are angels. Actually, that's what they literally say. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and then so forth. He continues 
talk about. So he's talking about the same time period. He's referring to actually an extra biblical book, both he and Jude are, are not that they're seeing that as God's word, but the, the, the phrase and the words chosen are actually from this extra biblical book that is about this exact time period and this exact point that I'm making, that these are angels. And so Peter calls them angels, literally here. Jude 6 as well. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Jude as well makes it clear that these are angels. They're angels who do not keep their proper place. Now there are, of course, objections to this view. And I'm sure you're thinking, this is pretty wild. I have some objections, naturally. One of the objections that people bring up is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, when he's explaining uh, about marriage of humans uh, after the resurrection to the Sadducees who are trying to trap them. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So speaking of mankind, that we will not be married uh, or given in marriage, we will be like angels. We, we will not engage in, in uh, marital intimacy. That's what he's saying. Like the angels in heaven. Uh, and that's very clear. There's no debate of that. And I think the way you answer that is this story in Genesis 6 is not about angels in heaven. It's about fallen angels who are not keeping their proper place. They are judged, actually, for not doing as they ought to have done as angels to, to oversee oversee God's creation on his behalf uh, and, and to not interfere in this way. So these are fallen angels and, and, I, and so I don't think Jesus is meaning them here when he says that in Matthew 22. Another objection is aren't angels spiritual? So how could they take on flesh and, and engage in sexual intimacy with women and produce children? Well, if you read throughout scripture, you see lots of instances where angels take on physical properties. They take on form, even human form. Uh, the angels come with the Lord to visit Abraham uh, in Genesis 18 uh, as they go to investigate what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, they meet with Abraham and it says in chapter 18 verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. These are angels, but they have every appearance and feel of men. They don't just appear as men. They actually take the form of men. Uh, verse 8, then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. These are angels eating food. And then later on, uh, when they go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the two angels are there. The angel of the Lord's not there. The two angels, other angels are there. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And then they attack, and it says, But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Who were these men? They were the angels. Lot is outside the door. He's in danger. They reach their hands out. They're called men here, but they're angels. And they bring Lot inside. Physical incarnation essentially, of these angels. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with an angel. You can't wrestle with a non-physical being. It's a real person, a physical being that he wrestles with. Genesis 32. 
It's in the New Testament as well. Peter is in jail. Chapter 12 of Acts. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. Physical contact. Struck him. He said, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So those objections, I think, are answered by Scripture. Now, you're maybe getting a little bit afraid right now. Um, is this something that Pastor Paul came up with on his own? And if that's ever true, please be afraid for me. Uh, but it's not something Pastor Paul came up with on his own. This has been a historical view of this text. Um, it was the majority view up until the time of Augustine. So the early church, uh, Ambrose, Tertullian, Cyprian, Clement, and so forth, they held this view. It was the majority view. Um, I would submit that today it's re-emerging as perhaps a majority view, uh, particularly through the work of, my, of biblical scholar Michael Heiser, uh, who just passed on to be with the Lord, an Old Testament scholar. Not that I agree with everything that he teaches. He has been helpful in bringing out these biblical truths and causing us to wrestle with them. They're uncomfortable. They're kind of weird for us. But I think the scripture is very clear about them. And there's more in the passage. Because it's not just that these are angels, but these angels are with women and have children. The children are called the Nephilim. In chapter 6, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So these are the offspring of angels and humans called Nephilim. That word Nephilim likely just means giants. Um, there's debate on where it comes from, but likely just means giants. They were the superheroes of legends here. Um, and, and they are never portrayed positively like our superheroes. These are evil super, superheroes. And the storyline in the text is important to get. They are... Uh, having some sort of influence apparently on the evil of mankind. And later on, we're, uh, we'll, we'll look at it, in the worst enemies of Israel have these giants among them. And so there's a connection between these, these, these giants, these hybrids, uh, and evil. That's, that's the implication here and elsewhere. So we see them elsewhere in Scripture, just as it says in chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, it says, in those days, before the flood, and also afterward. And so we see them elsewhere in Scripture when Israel goes into the land and they are to take over the land and they send out the 12 spies. Ten of the spies freak out. Why do they freak out? Well, it says Numbers 13, 33, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to, to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them. So the Nephilim show up again when they're spying out the land and they're throughout the land actually among these different cultures and these different cultures that actually look very much like Genesis chapter 6. Remember, this book is written for the very people who are going into the land and encountering these same things. There's a parallel here. These giants and uh, great evil in these cultures. God says elsewhere that the judgment that, that Israel is carrying out on his behalf is because of the great evil of these cultures not because they're merely giants among them, but there's a connection between these evil giants and the evil of the cultures. So elsewhere we see Deuteronomy chapter 2, 
uh, speaks of them as well among the land of Ar, um, where it says uh, the Amim formerly lived there, people great and many and tall as the Anakim. So the Anakim or the Nephilim uh, as well, Numbers 13 as we read earlier. Like the Anakim, they're also counted as Raphaim, another word that means big and scary, I believe. But the Moabites called them Amim. And then Og, king of Bashan, maybe you've heard about him. He was a Nephilim as well. It says for uh, Deuteronomy 3.11, For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Raphaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron, and is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth. That's about 14 feet by 6 feet. Giant bed, uh, according to the common cubit. So we have these giants living among these very evil cultures. And Israel is sent in to bring God's judgment on these cultures. God alone judge, is able to judge that way. And they annihilate these cultures on behalf of God. And yet the Nephilim persist in Scripture. It says in Joshua 11:22, There was none of the Anakim, synonymous word, left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. And then we see later, 1 Samuel 17, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And then 2 Samuel 20, Goliath has brothers, speaks of them. And, and there was war again at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. 1 Chronicles 20. And after this there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer. Then Sibachai the Hushathite struck down Sipiah, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And the Philistines were subdued. And there was again war with the Philistines. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So we, we see these Raphaim, Nephilim, in, among the Philistines. And Goliath is a Nephilim. That's what the... Bible teaches us. So, as amazing as it may seem, there were real giants on earth. And they were likely the offspring of illicit fallen angel human relations. And these giants seem to have influenced these cultures to great evil. An evil that was so great that God had to judge those cultures. That's a reality behind the story is God in his goodness sometimes chooses because of great evil to bring judgment, not rescue. Our story has both of those things. They both reflect the light and brightness of God. Now, as I said, you don't have to agree that these are fallen angels and the Nephilim are descendants of fallen angels. The storyline isn't about that. The storyline here is about how sin has its way among fallen mankind. And how it gets darker and darker and darker. And the storyline also is about how the spiritual world is part of that decline. That it isn't simply mankind, though that's where God lays the blame, by the way. God doesn't say, well... The devil made you do it, so I'm not going to deal with you. No, you did it, mankind. You've gotten that far down this path of evil and sin, 
and I'm bringing, I'm calling you to account. It's never in scripture put in a way where it's not my fault, it's the devil. But it's also presented that there is this reality of a spiritual war going on. And spiritual, the influence of fallen angels and real demons. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle as Christians, as we seek to follow Jesus, is not ultimately in terms of the spiritual darkness against flesh and blood, because behind that evil we see in us is the active enemy. Now mankind is called to account. We are all called to account. But the warfare ultimately is against the spiritual reality. And so we need to have a category for this. It may seem weird to Western, the modern Western mind. And, and let me just challenge your assumptions uh, as a modern Western person that gets to evaluate what is legitimate and what isn't. God's revelation is our ultimate authority. And I would just submit, if you believe in the, the reality of his creation, then anything is possible that God wants to allow to be possible. I don't personally have a problem with this, though it is unusual for us. And I think we need to have a category for this reality of, of fallen angels and spiritual darkness. And, and it, it's important to understand it so that we would bring the spiritual weapons against our spiritual enemies. That's what Paul talks about. Ephesians 6, our spiritual weapons are ultimately the good news of Jesus. The most powerful weapon you have is the good news of Jesus against spiritual darkness. Prayer, the power of the Spirit. Understanding that, that you, you can't just always bring a, a human solution. Those solutions might be good and helpful. There are good things and wise things to do on the human level, but let us not neglect this parallel reality of the spiritual dimension. So, we see in this passage the darkness of fallen angels. Next, the darkness of fallen men. Verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who, uh, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and peeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. This, this is such a tragic paragraph. Because it's hard to imagine how God could say he was sorry he made mankind. It's hard to imagine how evil things had become. You see, our God is a God full of mercy. Great mercy. We, we know verses uh, elsewhere in Scripture that speak of the, of the depth of His mercy and grace. He says in Isaiah 1, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 53, speaking of Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Christ himself bore our sins on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So we see these verses and, and, and we recognize that the amazing mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. So, so how could it be that things were so evil that God Himself said He was sorry. He regretted that He had made man. It says, The wickedness of man was great in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. It is so dark here, and so sad, that it grieves God. Theologians call this state utter depravity. Utter depravity. It means being depraved, being depraved of the image of God, the goodness of God to the point where it's complete. It's as far as it could go. That's what's going on here in this time period in Noah. It's as wicked as it could possibly be under the influence of these demonic forces. But nevertheless, mankind has chosen to pursue evil to this extent. Now, I don't believe that any human nowadays currently, is capable of this level of evil. I'm going to talk about it shortly. God is restraining evil in our day. God is advancing the gospel in our day. It appears near the end, before Christ returns, this, we may return to such a state, but we're not anywhere near there right now. God is restraining evil. We live in a time where God's favor is pouring forth. So let us understand that, but let, let's, let us not miss the point here. This is what mankind looks like if he goes his own way apart from God. This is where it goes, apart from the restraint of God. This is where it goes. This is where we would go. We don't like to hear that. That's the testimony of Scripture. We are not utterly depraved, thank God, but we are pervasively depraved. Scripture teaches us that. There's a difference. The effect of sin is pervasive. It affects all of who we are, but not to the ultimate extent. That's the difference between pervasive and utter. So I'll give you some scriptures. There's lots more I can give, but just to help convince you that you and I are pervasively depraved. Romans 7 for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness. is in their hearts while they live. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us are pervasively polluted by sin. 
to some degree. Now, some of us look a lot better than others. Relatively speaking, some of us are very good. But compared to the original image of God, God himself, we are all polluted. We are not utterly depraved and we won't be as long as God restrains us from sin. He does this through many different ways. Just a side note quickly to cover this. First, we are made in the image of God and we do desire noble things and that does operate and function in our lives. The image of God is a precious thing. That's the basis of the, of the law against murder because humans are the image of God. And that is retained uh, to some degree in us. God restrains evil by that reality. That we can corrupt the image more and more if he were to release his restraint. Second, uh, there is the natural love that he's built into us. So we, uh, Toby read from Luke 11, where Jesus is talking about prayer, and he says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So you're, you're evil, you're polluted by sin, but, but you understand how to love your children. Thank God for that natural love. He's given us a conscience, Romans 2. For when the Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the conscience is still active in us. God is still in charge of this universe. It's his universe, not the devil's. And so there are consequences. So Proverbs is a book all about this reality, living in this reality that the, that the wise person tends to experience rewards. The foolish person tends to experience suffering and difficulty. Uh, so Proverbs 8, riches and honor are with me, speaking of wisdom, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the path of justice granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. There is a blessing that comes with goodness and wisdom. Yes, the, the details uh, we can't control or guarantee, but overall there's that tendency. And Proverbs 27, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple, the fool, goes on, go on and suffer for it. So foolish choices lead to problems. That's how God restrains sin. Also civil authorities as well. Romans 13, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So through these, what, five uh, or so different ways, God restrains sin in our world so that we don't become utterly depraved. But we are pervasively depraved. I've heard an illustration that's helpful in this. Uh, picture two tall glasses of pure spring water Wonderful, cold, clean water to enjoy. And say that I went to the uh, sewer treatment plant and grabbed some sludge that's COVID infected. And in one glass that's beautiful, I just take a little tiny eyedropper of that sludge and put it in the glass. The other glass, I pour all the sludge in until there's no water left. It's just pure sludge. And I say, which one will you drink? Your response should be, neither. <laughs> one is utterly depraved. One is pervasively depraved. The, the COVID, the sludge is throughout that whole glass. Though it looks pretty pure, it's still not fit to drink. That's the difference here. And the connection for us, the application here, 
How do we relate to this? We need to see in this uh, a few things. I, first, I, I think it's just so powerful. And the words that are used about God, and he regrets that he's made mankind. He's sorry. And I think we need to grieve over our sin and over the sin of mankind and over the sin of our world. God's world and God's ways are good, perfect, and glorious. And we need to feel the same sorrow, the same grief, and most of all, not about those people out there, but this person. Why don't I love him as he deserves? Why is it so hard for me to love others? We should be grieved by that. We should, we should have the same heart that God does. Sorry for our sin, grieving over our sin. We should cry out with Paul what he says in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that prepares us to appreciate all the more the next part of that verse. That helps us understand just how precious it is that God took on flesh and did what I couldn't do, lived a perfect life of love, and then went to the cross for me, for you, to pay for my failure, my sin that grieves God. God of goodness and justice. And then rose again on the third day, victorious over my sin, your sin, and death. And has given himself freely to us, to all who would receive him. And so Paul can say in Romans 7, not just wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And, and we need to sometimes just pause there. But not stay there. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how I believe we apply what we're reading here among many other ways. Well, finally, and I've already kind of moved ahead to the third part, the light of God's favor. Verse 8, such a profound short verse, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of this verse, uses the word grace for favor. It's really synonymous. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is so profound, so important. We can, we can look at this verse and look around this verse and, well, what, what was different about Noah? Because Noah is obviously a contrast to all this evil, this great evil. Things are so evil here, yet here we have Noah. Different. What's different about him? Well, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, well what's that favor based on? Well, verse 9, if we read ahead, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Well, is this how he found favor? Because he somehow figured out how to be a righteous man and be blameless and walk with God when everyone else was doing otherwise? Is that what's going on? 
Well, I think there's something behind this righteous life. And we learn about that in Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes from his own self-efforts. No. The righteousness that comes by faith. So, just lining up the logic here, Noah is, walks with God, he's blameless, but why? Because he's a man of faith. Where does that faith come from? Where's the origin of faith? Well, we can look elsewhere in Scripture to understand this. Ephesians 2, we, reading on, we had an earlier section. Before, chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace, speaking of the believer, who's come to Jesus, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. There's that word grace. There's the word faith. There's the word saved, just like Noah was saved from the flood. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This salvation, this grace, this state of faith, this thing is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Who did this? He did. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith is a gift from God. David says in Psalm 22, Yet you are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. Ephesians 2, 4-6, through 6, it says, But God, though we are, the earlier part we read, right? It's about the darkness. It's about pervasive depravity. But then it says, but God. It doesn't say, but you. But your spirituality. But your higher, greater sensitivity to the things of God. It doesn't say that. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what is the math, the formula, if we can use that word here? Favor, grace, grants the gift of faith that leads to righteousness in Christ, God alone, and a righteous life. And so when it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, it means God acted when everyone was going the other way. God pursued people who loved the darkness more than the light. He poured out favor on an undeserving man in his family because of who he is, because he's a God who is the God of light and goodness and hope, and no darkness will ever, ever envelop him. No darkness can ever overcome his light. It's who God is. This is a story that's here, that's true, that happened, but it's recorded so that we would understand who God is and who we are. Written for Israel as they came out of Egypt to understand who God is and who they are. You're no different in, in so many ways. You need to be rescued just as Noah was rescued. You need grace. You need God. These truths are meant to, to inform us, but also be used by God that we might experience grace and faith and rescue. 
God continues in our day to rescue. And now actually we're in a day where, where his favor is being poured out. We live in a day of favor. Jesus says in Luke 4, quoting from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah, looking to what God would do, God speaks through Isaiah and says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. We live in a day of favor. A day where God is rescuing countless Noahs through Christ. There are wonderful stories out there. We have seen more Muslims come to faith in Christ since 9-11, um, of all dates, since the whole, uh, compared to the whole history of Islam. More since 9-11 than the whole history. We're seeing wonderful things happen. I, I just read one story uh, Gina Fadley from uh, YWAM Missions tells of an ISIS fighter who approached them and said he had begun having dreams of a man in white who came to him and said, you are killing my people. He started doubting himself what he was doing and, and, the, and the fighter, this guy said he had just killed a Christian and the man, the Christian said, I know you will kill me but I give to you my, my Bible. The Christian was killed the ISIS fighter took the Bible and began to read it. He then dreamed of Jesus again. In the dream, Jesus asked him to follow him. And the, the man said it was just too powerful and compelling for him to not do what he was told. And so this ISIS murderer is now a follower of Christ. And there are many stories like this. Many stories as God is moving in great darkness. Let us understand this is the heart of God, not only for Muslims, but for your neighbors, for your friends, for your family members. We live in the day of favor, where God wants to bring his light to the darkness. So we live in light of this truth here in Genesis 6. We receive the truth for ourselves. We live in the wonder that God's grace is why I'm here God's grace has acted when I would have pursued darkness and, and gone as far as I could have gone into those things. He reached out and rescued me. He shone his light in my life. He poured out favor. So receive that reality and live in it. Let that compel you each day to, to motivate you to, to rest and receive and rejoice and follow after him. And let that also motivate you to share that good news with others. Trusting God to open blind eyes to work his rescue. As I close, I just want to encourage you to, to take a minute just to pray. Ask the Lord, how can I live in light of this reality of your favor, the brightness of your favor shining in the darkness in my life? Let's take a minute just to pray and ask, and then Pastor Toby will come up to lead us in communion.